Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today's episode, I speak with Luis Hayes, PhD, who is a clinical psychologist, author, and international speaker. She's a fellow and past president of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. She's a peer-reviewed acceptance and commitment therapy training ACT trainer, engaged in training professionals all across the world. Together with Joseph Chiroki, she developed DNAV, which is a leading model of acceptance and commitment therapy that has sparked international studies and school curricula. She's the co-author of the best-selling books for young people, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life for Teenagers, and Your Life, Your Way, released in 2020. She's the author of the practitioner book, The Thriving Adolescent. And in 2022, she will release a new book using DNAV with adults, What Makes You Stronger? Luis is also an active clinician working with adults and adolescents. She's a former senior fellow with the University of Melbourne and Oregon Youth Mental Health. Luis leads the community of mindfulness practitioners, is a certified Buddhist meditation teacher, and takes professionals into the Himalaya to develop their mindfulness skills. In remote Nepal, she has built a school and raised funds for poor children. To learn more about Luis, go to www. Go to louisehayes.com or dnav.international. Let's listen to the interview. Well, hi, Louise. Welcome. Hi, Keith. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining on. me today. So uh, I'm really excited that you're on, and I've been uh, really interested in learning more about your approach, the DNAV framework uh, for doing ACT. Um, I heard about it first through a colleague of mine who was doing a workshop on working with adolescents and working with families, and I was just really intrigued. I really liked how kind of you're kind of presenting the ACT information in a way that was really great to connect for teenagers, which is an, an area of focus for me. Um, so I'd love to hear about your work and, and kind of even before we get to that, I'd love to hear about how you got to doing what you're doing here. I'm always interested in people's kind of evolution of thinking. Um, well, thank so, yeah. you. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm always interested in people's evolution of thinking and how they arrive at where they at. Um, especially therapists, really, because sometimes mm -hmm. we have an interesting journey. Definitely. So this is my second career, actually. I um, used to be in the cutthroat world of being a retail buyer. Oh, wow. So this is my second career. Um, and uh, when I, I, um, I actually left school really very early. I was 14 years old when I left school. But I was fortunate enough to be able to kind of work up through a, an apprenticeship kind of model. Um, but then when I... Uh, had children, I would, I had the opportunity to go to university. So I was really lucky. And um, psychology was available on the days that I could study. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how it happened. Oh, and I really did not plan to be a psychologist. I only had two days a week that I could go to university and mm -hmm. psychology was on those days. So I chose the subject and it has been a lifelong love Ever oh, since nice. I was hooked very quickly. Great. And then, yeah, how'd you get into doing the, the work that you're doing and, and kind of get into ACT and, and this kind of model? 
Yeah, well, I was pretty lucky, actually. I just think I was in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, about 20 years ago when ACT, I think ACT is about 30 years old now, although it feels like it's new to lots of people. Yeah. I think it's about 30 years old. Um, and about 20 years ago, I just happened to be doing my clinical training mm-hmm. in um, a, a department that was mainly ABA, Applied Behaviour Analysis. Uh-huh. I'm not a BCBA, but my background is um, behavior analysis. Mm-hmm. And at that time, everybody in the tour, in the department was talking about Steve Hayes, who uh-huh. was a behavior analyst, um, and this new thing called acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm. And they were up in arms. He's going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, <laughs> it's all all the behavioral principles that we've got tried and true were going to be thrown away. And, mm. There was so much talk around it that I thought, oh, I really want to see what this is about. Yeah. I didn't and know that I was, Stephen Hayes had been a, a behavior analyst. Yeah. His background oh. is in behavior analysis and oh. his research. Um, and so, um, yeah, lots of research in rural government behavior and um, some of those uh, earlier behavioral research. Mm-hmm. Um And so I was lucky enough that Steve, not long after that, Steve Hayes was in Melbourne doing some training Mm. and uh, I was lucky enough to go along and it completely changed my work life, how I thought about my clients and who Mm. I, and changed who I am. It's, Mm. it was, it's just transformational, not, not in an instant, but in a journey. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I, actually, can you even speak to, I'm just interested in how uh, behavior analysis kind of is, is within ACT or just I'd be even interested in any examples. Because um, I know I, I know that when I learned ACT, uh, you know, one of the things I really took away from it was almost this like kind of more robust, like motivational interviewing for like kind of exposure work or like, you know, the idea of connecting with one's values and moving, you know, kind of towards one's values and being willing to experience discomfort and, and, and those kind of things. Um, but yeah, I'd be, where do you see well, those threads? Well, behavioral principles, for mm-hmm. a start, um, uh, the foundation inside ACT is behavioural principles. Mm-hmm. And that might not be immediately obvious to everyone who comes to ACT because they come from different directions. Mm-hmm. But its foundation was that. Um, and there are things that are the core inside behaviour analysis, such as a functional assessment, mm-hmm. um, that are part of what the work that we do in ACT. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we call it different things, but if you're doing creative hopelessness, then you're looking functionally at what the client is doing and how it's working for them. Yeah. And its foundation is in a functional assessment. Mm-hmm. So too with ACT, kind of that idea of the emotional avoidance and how the person is trying to, you know, kind of manage the anxiety, but the, the function, the behaviors that, that are kind of not leading them to be able to move forward, but instead kind of getting stuck. Sure. Yeah. And also even in its very philosophy, you know, when we talk about everything a human does is behavior, Mm -hmm. whether it's thoughts or feelings or memories or uh, sensations, we look at them all through the prism of considering them to be behavior. Mm. Um, And our, um, our philosophical approach is that everything a human does is behavior that occurs in a context. Mm -hmm. That's very behavioral. Yeah. Oh, great. 
And um, how did this kind of, uh, how did the trajectory go to, to, to lessons? Um, well, at that time I was working, when I did my clinical training, I decided that I would work with adolescents mm -hmm. for the crazy reason that I thought they would be easier to work with than adults. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and when I say that now in my trainings and people just laugh because yeah. anybody who works with adolescents, like, you know, that that's actually harder, right? It's not yeah. easier. It's harder. Definitely. Because uh, they're not always willing and ready. Yeah. Um, and so I decided that I would work with adolescents because I felt like I kind of got them. Mm -hmm. I also felt like. I was a bit scared at that stage of working like with a, the whole whole thought of working with like a 50 year old guy would have freaked me out. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but now I, um, now I work with adults. Mm -hmm. Primarily I work with adults actually. Oh yeah. So I work with both adults and adolescents, mm. um, but it was just the beginning place. And at the start way back then, you know, 20 years ago, I was thinking, well, how do I do act with adolescents? You know, mm -hmm. how, to, how do you actually do that? Mm -hmm. Because it, to, to my mind, it's a different landscape to working with adults. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You have to kind of translate it to, to you know, kind of be relevant and, and for them to take it in and be able to, to really kind of get it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so that was a journey of... How do, how do we do this back when there was no literature for how to do it with adolescents? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what did, how did you come to the, the, uh, the DNA model? Well, um, my colleague, Joseph Cherokee and I, um, and, and another colleague, Anne Bailey, we initially wrote a book, um, get out of your mind and into your life for teens. Mm -hmm. And then we wanted to move from that onto a, a framework for practitioners to, mm -hmm. to use. We wanted to be able to train practitioners. And so we wrote a book called The Thriving Adolescent. Yeah. Um, and inside that was a lot of deep thinking and work on how do you, how do you think developmentally mm -hmm. and from a growth framework? Mm. Um, how do we incorporate what we know in terms of development and growth mm -hmm. for a human and Part of that was looking at evolution, evolutionary science too, evolution science. Mm. Um, and to try to bring all those principles, like we wanted to think about yeah. attachment, right? Mm. You know, the, the basic principles that we really yeah. care about when we work with young people, things like attachment, principles like um, understanding our very core evolutionary behaviours like play, you know, play mm -hmm. is a behavior that occurs across all species. Yeah. Humans play, bear cubs play, puppies play. Mm -hmm. So play is an evolutionary adaptation of some forms. So we want mm -hmm. to think about all of those behaviors and how do we put them inside ACT, which essentially was a, a framework for how to help people get unstuck. Yeah. And so we wanted to think about, well, what about if you're not stuck? Mm -hmm. What about if you're growing? Mm. Um, and can we do it from a from that kind of place where we're thinking about, you know, uh, a, a, a concrete example? I don't expect a thirteen year old to know what they value, sure, sure. and to think about what's going to give them a meaningful life into the future, mm -hmm. and to be working for that. My God, that's just not the developmental space. <laughs> Hard to jump that far ahead. Yeah, that's right. To be saying, you know, what do you want to do in the future, and what do you want your life to be about? And so we we wanted to think about 
the the model in that space. And we ended up over many years of testing and trialing and working in schools and working with clients, coming up with a framework that we call DNAV, mm. which is like it feels boastful to say, but it's been a game changer in lots of ways because yeah. it's been all across the world with young people in all different kinds of settings. And people say that it's made it easier for them to do act work with young people. Great. Yes. And, and I'm wondering, prior to getting to that work with the young people, what were you noticing that were the differences or the challenges of applying ACT or, or conveying ACT to teenagers? Because, um, yeah, I'd just be interested in kind of what, where were the areas that, that you most found that it was harder to maybe translate or the concepts or the, the exercises? Because, you know, I love uh, with ACT 2, there's so many nice exercises like the tug of war exercise or the chessboard or these kind of things that really kind of bring the concepts to life. Um, yeah. Were there any particular areas that, that were finding harder to kind of connect your yeah, for sure, Keith. And um, if we can begin, like, theoretically, I think that's a good place to think. Yeah. Um, from a theoretical perspective, uh, a child and adolescence um, professional who will always begin thinking from the outside mm -hmm. and come in. So, for example, with a young person who's struggling with an issue, I'm going to be thinking uh, what content, what is the, the family and social context in which this is occurring? Um, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, if I have a, a child who is running out of the classroom and won't stay in the classroom, mm -hmm. my first um, approach is going to be thinking about um, what's happening in the classroom that is aversive or unpleasant to them mm -hmm. um, and what is their attachment to their primary carers and and how are they, how are they separating from their primary carers and we're going to be looking at all of the external factors the teacher mm -hmm. the, the social setting the front the family um, all of those external factors and they're going to be the place that we begin sure um, whereas in an act framework with an adult for example if an adult said i really hate my job and i avoid my work mm -hmm we're going to focus immediately on what's going on inside that person. Like what are your thoughts and your feelings about the job that mm -hmm. you're in? Um, mm -hmm. Because that's how, so it's kind of, that's what, that's the way that I kind of think about it. We want to sure. begin socially and contextually. And funnily enough, that's kind of worked so well that Joseph Cherokee and Anne Bailey and myself have just finished a book on using the framework DNAV for adults. And so that's going to come out in July. We released in July 22. Yeah. So with the kids, you kind of often start kind of looking at the external, but then kind of bringing in act to it, you're kind of doing something very different. You're kind of going more to the internal rather than just looking at the behavioral functional analysis of what's happening in the class, what's going on understanding more about their thoughts and feelings about what's going on in the class that's maybe kind of leading to that behavior yeah it's not to say that we wouldn't do um those internal things but we would always look holistically yeah and i think yeah. that's the important thing we'd always be looking holistically um and so we've actually found ourselves in a place where that holistic framework is what we're actually doing now with adults too 
Mm. Um, and uh, I think the other part of it is that our focus has always been on growth and development. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, for example, with a, an adolescent, we don't, as I said before, we don't assume that they have their values all wrapped up in a package or, or that they even know what they kind of person they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't assume they know how to use language and that they're good and understand what thinking is about and the function mm-hmm. and how it works. So we kind of adopt a place with young people where we see that there's many things that they have yet to learn. Yeah. Um, and then as we've been on that journey, we've started to really think about, well, hang on, adults are growing too. Mm-hmm. I'm not fixed. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've just described my journey of growing and changing yeah. and where, and you have the same journey of growing and changing. And so we've just started to look at how we use the same framework for helping adults grow and change. Mm. Well, it sounds like it kind of really fits in with the, the hexaflex model of the self in context kind of aspect that, uh, right, with ACT, it, you know, one of the aspects is, is uh, psychological kind of rigidity, and we're trying to create more flexibility. And sometimes when somebody's got the identity, like, I am a PTSD war veteran, or so on, kind of looking at how their identity, yeah, changes over time, or with context, or so on, and creating more, more flexibility and fluidity with that. And it sounds like, you know, with, with children, adolescents, they're, they're changing very, very quickly, just you know developmentally and but like you're saying also with adults we're also changing over time and context yeah and um and the thing that happens to us is that we language makes us lose contact with the idea that we're constantly changing Mm. you know we know from our bodies (laughs) when we look at our bodies that are constantly changing we're not always delighted about that right Uh uh-huh um and we can see in the future that our bodies are going to be doing things that we are not going to be happy about. Mm. But our identity, we often feel like that's a, a thing that stays the same. Yeah. But of course, it, in ACT, that's one of the fundamental pieces of ACT work is helping people see that you have the ability to grow and change, mm-hmm. that your thoughts are a part of you, mm-hmm. but not all of you, and that they change. Yeah. It's a really powerful way of understanding yourself if mm-hmm. you can step inside it and feel that experience. Yeah, yeah, because ACT is very experiential and really kind of helping that person kind of make contact with the present moment. Oh, yeah, because telling you that you can change is not the same as feeling a sense of being able yeah. to change. experiencing it. Yeah, feeling it, yeah. Oh. So you... Um, so you, you came from this uh, kind of behavioral analysis background um, and then working with the adolescents using ACT and then kind of finding a way to be able to, to kind of frame it for them in this DNA model. And, and particularly that model was also influenced by looking at how people develop and grow and, and kind of looking at that kind of evolutionary aspect and one way you're saying is that, you know, kind of working with folks that are stuck or so on, but, but also in another way, just kind of enhancing development and, and growth and, and uh, kind of change there to, to, which probably goes into that thriving, you know, kind of aspect that you're mentioning in your, uh, in your book. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to change and to grow. Um, it's a really wonderful place to work with people actually to yeah. see everyone 
through the lens of potential and change, mm-hmm. it's a really nice kind of way to begin to think about ourselves, Definitely. but also to begin to think and work about with our, the clients that we serve as well. Mm-hmm. You know, language is just so darn awkward. <laughs> we just get stuck inside our labels that we are this or that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's very liberating to get out of that. And so I, we should, we've been talking a bit about DNAV, but we haven't actually said what it is. So it might be useful mm-hmm. to talk about kind of what it is. So um, DNAV, the four letters stand for processes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we gave them characters like personifications because it made it easier. Um, but one is to think about the D stands for discoverer, mm-hmm. which is what you do and try, um, the actions that you take. The um, N stands for noticer, which is your ability to be an embodied presence in the world and to have feelings, but also have a physical presence, you know, to move your body in a way that um, helps you take in messages from the world, to notice everything inside you and outside you. And the A stands for advisor, which is another word for the way you talk to yourself, giving yourself advice about who you are and how the world is and the way it should be. Mm-hmm. And the V stands for value and vitality. We put those two together, value and vitality. Mm-hmm. And so those four processes, we think of them as covering everything the human does. Mm-hmm. And we can look at them in a way of saying, okay, how you notice your um, body and your sense of feeling and your senses and how do you experience the world? Are you doing that in a way that's um, most helpful to you? Are you able to improve that ability to grow with that ability? So, you know, simple language, get better at feeling, for example. Yeah. Um, but get better at feeling with other people too and being able to sense what you're doing with your noticer. Yeah. We, th- we think of them as processes that we can all, we all have and that we can all get better at. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the noticer is kind of that mindful aspect that's kind, yeah, of, that's kind of being mindful of your interactions or your experience or noticing the thoughts without necessarily kind of reacting or attaching to them. Yeah, it's, it's, your, it's your embodied kind of awareness, your senses and your um, experience and the way you carry yourself in the world. But, you know, you mentioned before you work with trauma clients. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, the way we notice and experience our, our bodies and be in the world is dramatically altered if we have traumatic experiences. Yeah, very much. You know, we can try very hard to shut off our body so that we don't get any of those feelings of fear or um, and no matter how hard we try, we still have to carry this body around with us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then sometimes a lot of work is put into not trying to feel the body, um, which can also create lots of difficulty rather than, than making contact. Yeah, absolutely, Keith, because I think one of the things that happens is that we, um, we, as we grow, become older, we become so cognitively, so reliant on our thoughts that sometimes we can try to rule the world with our thoughts and yet all the while we're a body walking around, right? And your body's telling you, 
you're tired today or you're scared today or you're stressed and running flat out today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes um, I think about the emotions or like the gaslight in the car, you know, it's kind of telling you there's something going on or a check engine light that, that we need to kind of attend to and figure out what's what's going on there. So yeah, if you're disconnected from it, then, you know, you're going to miss those cues. Totally, totally. Um, so each one of those processes, those four processes, um, discoverer, noticer, advisor, and values and vitality um, occur in two contexts that we care about. One is the social context that I mentioned before, uh-huh. which is our relationships and our history of attachments and nurturing and the ways in which other people influence us and we influence other people. Uh-huh. And then the other context is ourself, who we think we are uh-huh. and how that influences us. Mm. and so you're kind of applying that aspect of discover noticer you know to to looking externally and as well kind of in in relation to oneself yeah absolutely You've, you've really nailed it it's really looking at how do i use my um my thoughts for example just how do i use my thoughts to tell myself what to do Mm -hmm. how do i use my thoughts to understand what other people are doing Mm-hmm. And how do those two interact? Mm. And I think that's a really important place to think about. You know, sometimes I, I think, and um, how many times do you see someone that you're working with in therapy who says, you know what, I have really good relationships. I'm really supported. I'm really well connected. I just thought I'd see a therapist, right? That doesn't usually happen. Occasionally. Yeah most of the time there's an interaction and if there's a problem within us, there'll be a problem in our social world. Or if there's a problem in our social world, there'll be a problem within us. Yeah. So we, we never separate the social world from mm-hmm. the work that we do. Yeah. Yeah. They're so interconnected. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, therapists know that and do that all the time. We just make it explicit in a framework that allows us to think about it mm-hmm. or to not forget about it. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I, I was watching some of the, the videos. Um, There's a great little kind of cartoonish video describing the, the uh, dis- describer noticer and the advisor. And it, I was getting a sense that the discoverer is kind of like the, the trial and error, the kind of like, uh, I think use the term maybe the explorer. And I was getting a sense the advisor is the one that kind of has the, the, the ideas of, the, of what, how things are or so on and kind of going along with those, those kind of rules or expectations or so on um am i thinking about that that right or um yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um and so um if if you think this these were these were the discovery in particular was based on um thinking from an evolutionary perspective about the ways in which humans have adapted mm-hmm. and part of our um our growth and development from an evolutionary framework and so when I think about the discoverer, I um, think about what a young child is able to do in the world. So if you think about um, a baby, for instance, you know, when you're born, you're pretty much just noticing the world and feeling whatever you feel. It doesn't take long before you find out that you can, you know, push that thing off the side of the cot and it'll fall onto the floor or that you can poke something or you can you know pull your mum's hair and she'll yell 
you know, um, those things are what the discovery is actually all about. And it's, it's like the ability to find out that you have agency. Yeah, you have an effect. Yeah, you have, you're an agent in the world. You can manipulate things. You can poke things and push things. And then by the time you're about one year old, you'll learn to stand up and fall down and stand up and fall down and stand up and fall down. And if you think about that, uh, a one-year-old doesn't usually like stand up and fall down a few times and then say, ah, this walking thing's too hard. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I forget that. They'll keep trying it until they get it. And that's really the essence of the discoverer piece Mm -hmm. is, to continually build our behaviours to get bigger and bigger repertoires of behaviour that make us wiser and stronger. Mm-hmm. And that means trial and error. Yeah. Right? Trial and error. Mm-hmm. Imagine that takes risk. Now, it's pretty hard to use trial and error yeah. when you're an adult. Mm. Yeah, it takes that risk. That's right. And the older we get, the less inclined we are to take risks, Mm -hmm. to try new things, you know, to change our career or to go and join a new social group or to, you know, go and find a new hobby or we get stuck inside our our little framework of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the discovery is actually about about tapping into that part of us as a human that says, learn how to understand your physical world and get stronger and as a child. And then as you grow, play. And then as you become a teenager, take risks and try things. And then we want to move that into adult years is to get out of the comfort zone and to start trying things. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I wonder too, you know, as an adolescent, right, they're trying different things they're trying different identities but potentially maybe that's, that feels threatening as an adult because if you're trying and trying on a new identity or, or uh, so on, it, it might feel like that creates, un, uh, makes things unstable or something like that. You know, try something, you fail, and then maybe you aren't who you thought you were. And then that kind of breaks open, you know, kind of who am I now? Um, so maybe it's safer to just kind of stay as, as who one believes they are. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And in the adolescent space, you know, you think about the the real risks involved in trying to be a different kind of person, you know, stepping into a different social world or trying to join a different social group or, you know, trying to step up and do something that's really new for you. We kind of expect adolescents to do that pretty much all the time. Yeah. You know, if you think if, if you're 16 or 17, you're standing on the cusp of, having to find out your sexuality, having to leave home, having to go to college or to get a job, you know, having to decide who you are in the world. There's so many things to find out. And to try and failure is right behind all of those, right? And then we arrive in the adult world and sometimes we forget how hard that is. Mm -hmm. Or we know how hard it is, so we don't do it. But I, yeah. I just often look at adolescents with enormous admiration for how difficult the task is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the uh, the growth mindset stuff. They say, you know, do things in front of your kids where you're not so great at it because oftentimes we tend to do the things that we're so used to or practiced at that they see us doing everything with ease at times and, you know, not realizing that actually because, yeah, adults may not 
challenge themselves in these different ways or be, you know, kind of in situations where they have to do such a variety of, of, of things like the kids might have to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it doesn't really matter whether you're an adolescent or an adult. If we can really open up this space of understanding how trying and failing is growth, mm-hmm. um, then we'll all be better off for yeah. it. Um, but, you know, sometimes what we do as adults is we make a mistake and we just double down on it with some excuse about how we didn't really want to do it anyway or yeah, yeah. whatever, <laughs> whatever yeah. the thing is. Definitely. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, how about that advisor? You know, in, in the video, it was kind of somebody, you know, following a map and, and that was all kind of laid out. And in another video, it was kind of, you know, uh, showing some of the uh, uh, sticky notes of different thoughts or so on. Um, yeah, can you yeah. talk a little bit about the advisor and what that role Yeah, out? so the advisor is just another word we use for the way you talk to yourself. Mm, okay. So it kind of goes like this, you know, um, when you woke up this morning, Keith, and you opened your eyes and it was morning, who, who were you talking to? Mm-hmm. What was going on? Right? Mm-hmm. The first person you spoke to was yourself. Yeah. What am I going to do today? What tasks do I have to do today? Or whatever was going on. Mm-hmm. And that will go on until the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a word we use to describe the process of uh using language to really navigate our life, mm-hmm. like to tell yourself what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what other people should do, um, to problem solve and to use your beliefs and your judgments and your rules and all of those things. And so it was just a word that kind of encapsulated all of those things. And it gave us like one question that we really wanted to think about is, do you use all that in a dialogue, that self-talk and those instructions about the world and you in a way that's flexible or in a way that's um, rigid and, and shuts down your life? So if it's flexible, then you're able to um, approach life and, and try new things. Um, or let go of things that are really trapping you, Um, word things, I mean, that are really trapping you. But if it's rigid, you get stuck inside words like I can't or I won't, well, they did this to me. And those things become the cage that we live in. Yeah, so does this one play into the cognitive uh, diffusion uh, of kind of, you know, um, diffusing with your thoughts and not just kind of taking your thoughts as truth with a capital T? It, it kind of seemed like in the video, the, the person's following like a little map on their phone and they're not really watching and they just walk right off a pier because they're kind of so rigidly just kind of fused with, with what they're seeing on the screen rather than actually taking that and using that to reflect on also what's going on around. So just as we do with thoughts and noticing, I just had that thought that I can't, or that thought that this happened to me in this way or so on, rather than kind of looking at it. Is that kind of the the nature of that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that little metaphor that you're describing of the GPS is a good way to think about it because many of us have have followed our GPS only to find out that the the route that we took was the longer than if we had a, just thought about how to get there or that yeah, we ended yeah. up in the wrong place. Yeah. Or the wrong side of the road. <clears throat> or it makes you go all the way around the block because it wants you to park right at the front of that uh-huh. building when you sure. could park across the street and walk across the street. Um, so we've all done that. And we use that little metaphor of the GPS um, mm. 
taking you in off the end of a pier and into the water. Yeah. And it is a good way to think about what we have to do with uh, the way we use language or thoughts. We'll call it thoughts. It's easier. Um, is that we have to learn how to use this amazing tool that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, it's our, it's just think about thinking. It's just an incredible tool we have. Yeah, that metacognition. Amazing, amazing tool that humans have developed. Um, but we need to know how to use it. Mm-hmm. Right? And many of us don't learn how to use it. We're just inside it. Mm-hmm. it you know, it's one of the beautiful pieces of the ACT model when you suddenly go, oh, that's what thinking is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not truth with a capital T. It's mm-hmm. a tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the mind is always giving us thoughts. Um, you know, and kind of there's not the bad thoughts or the good thoughts or just the thoughts, right? And we can begin to choose how we might want to respond or interact with those thoughts rather than just purely being driven by them. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, yes, so diffusion is part of it, but we broaden it out a bit. We also use things like cognitive restructuring. We bring in some of the core CBT aspects and we use things like creating new rules, Mm-hmm. rule govern behavior to create new rules um and to understand a, a like we hope a bigger way of seeing how to work with um language and thinking and to train yourself to be flexible with mm-hmm. it we have a in our new book we have this just gorgeous little um uh illustration which i love it's my favorite illustration we have um, a picture of a, a character taking his advisor to training school, advisor training school. Uh-huh. And in one picture, he's dragging his advisor and his advisor's got his heels dug in the ground. He's like, oh, I'm not going. I don't <laughs> want to go to training school. And then in the other picture, we get inside training school and there's all these little pictures of um, advisors, little characters that uh-huh. represent different people's thoughts. And they're in there like doing yoga poses and, you know, <laughs> And that's, so I show that, showing that to my clients at the moment going, that's what it means to be flexible with your advisor. Yeah. Well, it's so nice too that, you know, because that noticer, right, is is the kind of conduit between those to be able to notice the advisor and not necessarily just treat it like truth with a capital T or to notice the trial and error to see what what the person can learn and and kind of um, glean from their their trial and error and in discovery. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah. And to use all, all, to use those things to help you do the things you care about, mm-hmm. not just in a valued way, but also in a way that is vitality too. So we, we make a distinction between value and vitality mm-hmm. and we use both because um, sometimes when you're growing and changing, you don't really always know, like with a sense of what the value might be, but you know that this thing kind of gives you a vitality and energy. Vitality is another word for like energy and engagement. Yeah. And so maybe you know this thing gives you a bit of vitality and makes you feel um, excited and interested, but you don't actually know that where it's going to take you. So we kind of use vitality and value to try to broaden that caring part out a little bit. That's kind of like the vitality is almost like that passionate part. Oftentimes a lot of parents that I work with are like, I just want them to be passionate about something. Um, yeah. That kind of aspect where they've got that energy and excitement or, and are kind of wanting more. 
Yeah, and that's a very important developmental piece because, you know, your vitality, your values, what you care about, what you value or who you think you are as an adolescent changes so dramatically from one year to the next. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to be able to have that fluidity and the change, we want to use vitality as a clue Mm -hmm. to what you might eventually care about to what might to what might matter to you yeah and tell me about how how you do that with adolescents around the value and is there um yeah any kind of you know aspects you're mentioning that maybe right there they might be disconnected from how they want to be in the future or so on how do you uh, adjust the values work with your adolescents or how do you think about it yeah well um I begin with, I actually begin with the vitality piece Mm. and I'm not describing vitality. I just ask them, you know, what do you, what do you like? What do you care about? What do you do? You know, Um, what do you watch on YouTube? What games are you playing? What do you do with your friends? What do you hang out with? And I let them tell me their stories about things. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for the vitality in, you know, when we talk about our pet projects, our face lights up and we get enthusiastic and we, you know, and so I'm looking for those pieces. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the things that are fun. Mm -hmm. It's also the things that they're passionate about. They might be angry about, Mm -hmm. you know, because they're, they care about it so much. Yeah. So I'm looking for those things as a way to begin creating a shared language with them on what they care about. Mm-hmm. The values piece. So values is, as we know, is doing things now for something you care about in the future. Yeah, and that's yeah. a that's a very tricky place for an adolescent because, like, caring into the future can be a scary place to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it can begin by helping them map what they care about or what they value onto language. Like, so you're the kind of guy who cares about this. Mm-hmm. So this really matters to you. Mm-hmm. And you get a lot of that from their, the things that they engage in. Yeah. From the things that bring, that where you see their passion and their vitality. So to make it concrete, often I begin looking with them at the things that they do and getting them together. We sit side by side on YouTube and they show me the things. And as they talk about it, I can say, I can see, and I can point out and shape and say to them, so you're the kind of person who. Mm-hmm. And depending on their age, I think the values piece is also shaping how you want to be in the world. Yeah. Um, the kind of person that you want to be. Mm-hmm. You know, and adolescents are so passionate about the way a friend should behave, sure. for example. Friends should be respectful and they should be non-judgmental and they should be, you know, you hear that quite a lot. Yeah. Well, I begin with a values place of shaping the way that you can act respectfully mm-hmm. or the way that you can care about being non-judgmental mm-hmm. um, and, and helping them bring those, own those behaviours and think about it for themselves. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not easy for any of us. So it sounds like you're from their passions, from the things that there's the vitality about, you're kind of gleaning the, the values and then kind of connecting to the values. Because I think, um, gosh, what's the, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the, the word um, that, you know, basically kind of putting in context, you know, you might say, oh, that person's an angry person, but 
when you get angry, you kind of explain, oh, I got angry because of this or so on, that we kind of explain oftentimes ourselves kind of relative and, and as state dependent uh, and others as trait dependent. But I imagine that value of that that's being imposed on the friends and so on kind of, yeah, bringing that attention back to and, and what is your value. Yeah. Um, well, if you have, you're right. If you have a strong reaction to anything, um, or an adolescent has a strong reaction to anything, it's because they care about something mm -hmm. inside that. Yeah. Any strong reaction, whether it's anger or pain or sadness or any strong reaction has got on the other side a message that something matters here. Yeah, something's important. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, you, we know that often those things that matter really drill down to just a very few simple principles. You know, I want to be loved and I want people to, I want to love people and I want people to love me. I want to feel safe. I want to yeah. be cared about. We're all pretty simple when it comes down yeah. to it. Those kind of attachment and kind of need, uh, you know, drive for connection. Yeah. And working out how to get that is the lifelong goal for all of us really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, yep. how to, how to feel that you matter mm -hmm. and how to matter about other people mm -hmm. and to stay connected and safe. Yeah. Yeah, and, and ACT is really nice uh, with kind of connecting to one's values um, or like, yeah, I think of the example of like somebody that, you know, is really, um, you know, wanting to do well in school or something like that. And, the, you know, and the, the, you know, sometimes the focus is just on getting into the college or things like that, but sometimes kind of connecting to the, the value of learning or the value of, you know, kind of what they're, they're going for, hoping for, because then you can live your values each day on your way to that goal, rather than kind of, you know, trudging along each day until you finally get to the goal. Yes, exactly. And I think that's a tricky thing when you're a young person is there are so many adult imposed, um, what, what's the word? Benchmarks. Yeah, expectations. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that you know, you, you first you're going to finish high school, and then you're going to go to college, and then or you know get a job, or you, so many expectations. Mm -hmm. um, and they're fine to work with, but I think the real power is when you understand yourself and what it means to you. Mm -hmm. So. I try not with young people. I try not to play that game too much about high school, and unless they want to play that game, I yeah. try to think about how you want to move about in the world as you go through this. Mm -hmm. Now, do you um, do you work with the kids in their families at all, or their yeah? Do you bridge that? Yeah, yeah, um, um, absolutely. Uh, I try where I can to do the work with. Um, adolescents and their parents too mm -hmm. and part of the we found some pretty easy ways to do that and um, one of the ways is um using the books that we write often i will give it to the parents to read a little bit and, and not a whole book actually um the the most recent book that we wrote is called your life your way and it's written for teenagers it's mm -hmm. a little self-help book yeah. Um, but it's got uh, very small chapters on particular topics. Like one chapter is on how to build friendships mm -hmm. and one chapter is on what to do if you worry too much. Yeah. So they're kind of discrete little standalone chapters. And so the way that I work with parents is I will often give them the chapter to read and say, this will give you an insight into what we're working on. Mm 
Yeah. That's one way. Or I bring the parent in and I talk about their own advisor and mm -hmm. their own noticer and help them kind of understand this is the model I'm using with your young person. Yeah. And this will yeah. help you think about from yourself how mm -hmm. it matters to you. And that's part of the reason we ended up doing this work for adults is because yeah. we were doing it with parents anyway. Yeah. And they were, they were getting it. And so, you know, there's one thing that's really powerful and that is that the way parents talk to themselves and give themselves advice is pretty powerful, right? Mm, and it can be such a big trap if you're a parent and the advice mm. you give yourself is often this is my fault mm -hmm. or I didn't parent them well enough or I was too impatient or too busy at work or, mm. or, or they should be better at this or why can't they do that? And we get go down that rabbit hole of winding ourselves up with the way we talk to ourselves. Yeah, or I have to do something about this right now, or it has to be fixed immediately, which I think oftentimes creates a lot of difficulty yeah. of trying to, to shift things immediately. Um, it can be really hard. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, one thing I find too when I work with parents and kids, I, I kind of mix ACT and CBT, and I do kind of almost like a little gestalt exercise where I have them, I guess, act out their advisors. Um, and uh, one thing kind of helping, usually oftentimes helping the parents to be able to access those thoughts for the kids, or I guess in this case, the advisors, but you know, as they're hearing some of this stuff, oftentimes their distress goes up. So being able to kind of not avoid that emotion by trying to fix immediately, but helping them learn how to kind of sit, sit in, in that space. Um, to go towards that value of connecting and being there for their team rather than just kind of trying to quick fix or getting reactive or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the way that parents talk to themselves is probably meaner than anyone than mm. any other place, you know, yeah. um, when you give birth to a child, you give birth to guilt and all of a sudden everything is your fault mm -hmm. or their fault or somebody else's fault, or just because we just have to make sense of things and we try really hard to yeah, make sense yeah. of things and to problem solve, to problem solve, to problem solve. Mm -hmm. And so some things that we do with DNAV and families is just to make space, right? Let's, let's make the space bigger. Mm -hmm. Let's think about um, not having to problem solve every single thing. Yeah. You know, I um, sometimes tell parents this. I did my PhD on parenting adolescents uh -huh. and adolescent problem behaviours. And as part of that, I um, interviewed a whole group of teenagers about the questions that their parents would ask them mm -hmm. um, and what it was like to be asked questions by your parents. Mm. And one of the things I said to them was, how many questions is it okay for your parent to ask you when you get home from school? Uh -huh. And the answer was, on average, two. <laughs> <laughs> And teenagers generally would describe that when they get home, their parents ask them a whole lot of things and they feel like they're being pecked at um, and, and that most of them were okay with about two questions. But after that, it was just starting to feel invasive. And so helping parents understand the way to use their own advice, their self-talk and how they use language to be a parent can be really useful to create a bit of space. So how about we just, not ask questions every single day. Some questions are important to ask, of yeah, course. Um, but sometimes um, with adolescents, we've got a different developmental space to be in. Mm -hmm. And I make no blame to parents 
when your little child is two years old, you're in charge of everything. Yeah. You know, you're in yeah. charge of, do you need to eat? Do you need to sleep? You need to do this. You need to put your shoes on, you know, and you're constantly languaging with your child yeah. about what needs yeah. to happen. And so it's really hard to let go of that when you've got a teenager and to realize that you don't, you don't, you're no longer in that place where you need to say, wear a sweater. Yeah. You know, have you eaten? It reminds me of the, uh, there's a line from Mike Greer, uh, uh, a book called Uncommon Sense for Parents of Teenagers. And I think the other one is connecting to your teen, but he talks about, you know, when, when children are young, you're their manager. And at some point in adolescence, they fire you and you need to get rehired on as a consultant. Um, <laughs> I haven't heard that metaphor, but that's really lovely. I love it. Yeah. I really love it. Yeah. And sometimes I'll use that with parents and say like, yeah, if you were a consultant for a business and going in saying you're doing this wrong, you got to do that. You got to do that. Right. They're going to say, forget it. We don't, we don't want your help. So you have to be able to, you know, kind of shift that relationship and have that resource available, but have them kind of coming to you yeah, yeah. around that and and it's a it's a whole shift which time really nice difficult yeah yeah lovely metaphor well i usually say to parents that um usually talk with parents about the world providing natural consequences this is how my behavioral roots run the world provides natural consequences yeah. and when your child yeah. is small you don't want the natural consequences of them not having enough food or you know um soiling their pants or doing those things so you're the one who's you know tracking the behavior for them but eventually you want them to be able to learn from the consequences of the world not from the consequences of you all the time yeah great well you know what this has been so wonderful it's great getting to know your your uh frame more and um you know really i i like you know i i like when things are boiled down to you know a few different pieces right because it's a bit easier to to understand and remember and to apply and and um yeah i think that would be really interesting using it with clients and even reflecting on it. I'm thinking of how I could use some of these things with my daughter who's 12 years old. Um, and, and I really, yeah, it's, it's really great to hear about it. It sounds like wonderful work that you're doing. Well, you're deep inside that space. If you have a 12 year old. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Lots changing quick. Um, uh, yeah. And so thank you, Keith, for inviting me, but you know, I think that there is such a joy in having an adolescent and, one of the greatest gifts that we can help parents have is to not be afraid of that because mm -hmm. I think parents are afraid. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm interested to see, I always tell people, you know, cause I've been working with adolescents, uh, whatever for the last 23 years. And I said, it's all going to go out the window when I have my own adolescent. So we'll see how it goes. And they've been helping <laughs> parents with their teenagers for years. And now I'm going to get a teenager coming along and we'll see what, we'll see if it all goes into action. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, and I will, will, will put links to the books on the, uh, our website and, um, you know, the, the website where there's the lots of different videos to learn more. And I know you're also doing some trainings, um, and so on. So uh, a lot of great resources for people to learn, learn it and apply it with their clients. So thank you so much. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for inviting me along. It's been such a pleasure. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to sf.com. IAP.com or call 
415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback. And if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.